Second Chronicles 33 and 9. So Manasseh made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to err and to do worse than the heathen whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. And the Lord spake to Manasseh and to his people, but they would not hearken. Wherefore the Lord brought upon them the captains of the host of the king of Assyria, which took Manasseh among the thorns and bound him with fetters and carried him to Babylon. And when he was in affliction, he besought the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed unto him, and he was entreated of him and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord, he was God. Now after this, he built a wall without the city of David on the west side of Gihon in, in the valley, even to the entering in at the fish gate and compassed about Ophel and raised it up a very great height and put captains of war in all the fenced cities of Judah. And he took away the strange gods and the idol out of the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built in the mount of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem and cast them out of the city. And he repaired the altar of the Lord and sacrificed thereon peace offerings and thank offerings and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. And I want to preach for a little while about the ministry of the thorns. And I speak faith right now in Jesus' name. I, I, feel, I feel the gifts of the Spirit operating right now. I want you to lift your hands. Father, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Lord, begin to move upon us right now. We've come before you, Lord, with praise and thanksgiving. Now, God, we stand at your throne with our hands lifted high towards you, Jesus. Lord, I can't do it unless you anoint me, Lord. Touch my mind and touch my voice and touch my body, God. God, I can't do it unless you begin to move upon me, God. Let the gifts of the Spirit begin to operate, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Lord, let your people know that there's power when they just, when they lay hands upon the sick, God, they'll recover. In the name of Jesus, Lord, I rebuke every spirit in this place that's not of you. Every devil has to be quiet. Every evil spirit has to leave. Come on, there will be freedom in this place. I speak authority against fear right now in the name of Jesus. I come against afflictions. I come against anxiety and depression. I cast it out in the name of Jesus Christ. Come on, clap your hands and shout unto God with a voice of triumph. You may be seated. Now Ahaz was 20 years old when he began his reign over Judah. And the Bible tells us that he didn't walk in the ways of the Lord and how Ahaz worshipped Baal and he offered his children in a fire to Molech. His reign is 16 years and in those 16 years Ahaz tries to do everything he can to bring Judah as far from God as he could. Second Chronicles 28 and 24. And Ahaz gathered together the vessels of the house of God and cut in pieces the vessels of the house of God and shut up the doors of the house of the Lord. And he made him altars in every corner of Jerusalem and in every several city of Judah. 
he made high places to burn incense unto other gods and provoked to anger the Lord God of his father. Now Ahaz dies and Hezekiah, his son, who's been saved from the fires of sacrifice, succeeds him at the age of 25. And Hezekiah is the 13th successor from David as the king of Judah at Jerusalem. Now I want you to notice something. In the very first month he is king, Hezekiah goes and he opens up the doors of the temple and he begins to repair the temple and he begins cleansing the temple and sanctifying the temple and offering up sacrifices and he restores the worship of the temple and then the priests, they make sin offering to make reconciliation with the blood for atonement for Israel. Then Hezekiah brings in the singers and the musicians And when the offerings begin to take place, they begin to sing a song to the Lord. And after many years of sin and backsliding against the Lord, the people of Judah are now being called back by their leader, the king, to the things of God and the temple. They destroy the idols. They destroy the graven images. And they come back to their place of service and worship to the one true God. Now, I want you to notice that even after all these things that they had done, and I'm so thankful that we have men of God right now. Come on, that's repairing things that's been broken in our homes. Come on, men of God, you need to go to your house and you need to get rid of the things that are keeping you and your family from the places and the things that God wants you to have. But even after all the things that they had done, And all the good that they had done. Guess what happens? The enemy still comes against them. Come on, you can be the biggest worshiper in this building. You can be the biggest giver. You can be the best tither. And you can do everything that you think is right. And everything you line up with everything that's taught from the pulpit. But that still doesn't keep the enemy from coming against you. Come on, the enemy comes against Hezekiah. The Assyrians come against them. But there's a difference when the enemy comes against a man of God. Come on, there's a difference when the enemy comes up against a home that's covered by a daughter of Zion that's on her face in the closet. Come on, that's why the Bible says that no weapon formed against you. That doesn't mean that there's not gonna be weapons. That means when they're formed against you, they can't prosper. Come on, men and women of God in this last days. We need to pray like we've never prayed before. We need to fast like we've never fasted before. The Assyrians come against them, build embankments against Jerusalem, and God sends an angel. One angel. We don't know his name. We don't know his rank. We don't know if it's a man or a woman. Come on. One no-named angel kills almost 300,000, 200,000 Assyrians at night. Can I tell you, just hold on. Come on, God sees every time that you're going through a trial. Come on, God sees everything that the devil's trying to come against you with. 
But let me tell you something. God's about to send an angel into your midst. God's about to send a healing angel. God's about to send a warrior angel that's going to step in and help you fight your battles. Just hold on. Keep being faithful. Keep fasting. Keep praying. Now on his deathbed, Hezekiah cries out to God and he's granted 15 more years. Then when he dies, his son Manasseh begins to reign. Second Chronicles 33 and 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 50 and 5 years in Jerusalem. But did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, like unto the abominations of the heathen, whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he built again the high places which Hezekiah his father had broken down. And he reared up altars for Balaam and made groves and worshiped all the hosts of heaven and served them. Also he built altars in the house of the Lord, whereof the Lord had said in Jerusalem, shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he caused his children to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. Also he observed times and used enchantments and used witchcraft and dealt with a familiar spirit and with wizards. He wrought much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. And he set a carved image, the idol. Some believe that that the idol was an idol of himself, the house of the Lord, which he had made in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen before all the tribes of Israel, will I put my name forever Neither will I any more remove the foot of Israel from out of the land which I have appointed for your fathers so that they will take heed to do all that I have commanded them according to the whole law and the statutes and the ordinances by the hand of Moses. Manasseh, known as one of the worst kings in the Old Testament. You can go and search and study the Old Testament and there's not a lot of kings that offered their children in the fire to sacrifice. But Manasseh and his grandfather both offered their children in a fire to the false god Molech. They used sorcery and enchantments, idols of himself and false gods. He forces the people of Judah to follow in his way. Even in all of his iniquities and sin, God still tries to speak to Manasseh and his people. But Manasseh refuses to hear the voice of God. So the Lord sends the Assyrians and they attack them again. You see, the first time the Assyrians came, the Lord didn't send them and was able to go, was go in and fight their battles. But you better be careful when you get to a place where God sends an enemy against you. Come on, you better find you a place of prayer. You better keep consecrated in your life. You better live in a state of repentance in your life. And the Assyrians attack and they bind Manasseh and they take him to Babylon and there he is bound with fetters and placed into thorns. But in his affliction amongst the thorns, 
is when he begins to cry out to God. Manasseh prays and humbles himself before God. God hears Manasseh's cries of repentance and delivers him and brings him back home to Jerusalem. This man, who was so evil and corrupt that he sacrificed his sons in the fire, this man, instead of relying on God, relied on witches, sorcerers, and enchantments, and horoscopes, and who finally God sends an enemy against him. This king, known as one of the worst in the Old Testament, when he found himself at the end of his rope with no hope, he begins to cry out to God from the thorns. God hears him. God saves him. And he goes back to his home, back to Jerusalem, and begins to build walls for protection. And he goes and destroys the idols. He destroys the groves. And he repairs the altars. And he again makes sacrifice. Because I'm here to tell you, under the unction of the Holy Ghost, that there's a ministry among the thorns. Come on, you may have found yourself at a place in life where it seems you've done nothing but wrong in your life. Sin after sin, trial after trial, everything is all about you and there's nothing about God. And when you finally find yourself at the lowest place that you've ever been, where you're bound up and in the thorns, but I'm here to tell you there's a ministry in your pain. There's a ministry in your suffering. There's a ministry in your affliction. There's a ministry in the thorns. In the thorns, you have no place to go. Come on, in the thorns, there's nowhere for you to turn to. In the thorns, everyone else is through with you. But God is waiting today to free somebody from the misery and the shame of life that you found in the thorns. He's just waiting on you to humble yourself and cry out to him in your pain, cry out to him in your shame, and he will minister and bring you out of your misery today. Man and woman, Adam and Eve, they're in an absolute paradise. They have everything they want at their disposal. Enticed and lured by the devil. They think that they can do it their way. So they eat of the fruit of the tree, which they have been commanded not to even touch. And you see, for that brief moment in their lives, they begin to think that they can do it their way. And they find themselves banished from paradise. Genesis 3 and 13. And the Lord God said unto the woman, what is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field, and upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, 
because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. And thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. Here they are, banished to the thistles and thorns to work the land. They have two sons in travail, Cain and Abel. Now immediately jealousy and envy show up. Cain doesn't like it because God accepts his brother's more excellent sacrifice. And in anger, Cain kills his brother. You see, now Adam and Eve not only feel the sting of the thorns, but they taste that awful taste of death and the broken heart of the total destruction of their family. All because of their sin, they have found themselves in this awful place. But somewhere in this place of sorrow and heartache, somewhere in this place of thistles and thorns, Adam and Eve find a place where they are once again in touch with God because she bears a son named Seth. And Eve says, because God has appointed me another seed to take the place of Abel. Seth then has a son named Enos. And the Bible tells us this is when men begin calling on the name of the Lord. Even though everything had gone wrong and Adam and Eve had disobeyed God and now they are cast into the thorns and thistles, it looked like it was over, but in all their pain and in all their suffering, they were able to find a way back to God because this is when men would begin calling upon the name of the Lord. Come on, I know your trial may seem like it's too hard for you to walk through. I know it seems like at every turn, something is pulling against you. Something is hurting you and you feel the sting and the pain of it. But I want somebody to understand there's a ministry in the thorns. God's about to pull you out. God's about to set your feet. God's about to take you to places you've never been before. You need a glory. You need to praise him because of the thorns. Sometimes the thorns are thorns of remembrance. You see, Saul was a persecutor of the church going out and seeking the followers of Jesus to arrest and to persecute, doing and committing horrible things to these people of God, watching the coats, cheering on the killers of Stephen. He's making threats to slaughter these followers of Jesus. So he sets out on a journey to find and persecute them but on his way to Damascus, a light from heaven shines all around him. Saul falls to the ground. He hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Why do you kick against the pricks? You see what the pricks were was a staff wrapped in thorns that they would use to prod the cattle and the sheep to keep them going in the right direction. He says, Lord, what do you want me to do? God instructs him to go into the city. He says, and I will tell you what to do. 
He gets up off the ground. Now he's totally blind and he's led into the city and he begins praying in his place of thorns and affliction and God shows Ananias where Saul is waiting, blind and praying. You see, once a man of authority and power, now Saul is a man broken and in despair. Ananias lays his hands on him and he receives the Holy Ghost. And when he does, come on, somebody's about to receive the Holy Ghost. And when he receives the Holy Ghost, immediately scales fall from his eyes. He arises and is immediately baptized. Come on, straightway, straightway. No wonder Paul suffers from poor eyesight the rest of his life, but he never forgot the ministry of the thorns. He even talks about the thorn in his flesh. 2 Corinthians 12, 6, For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool, for I will say the truth. But now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me, and lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations. There was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace, my grace, my grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I, there, I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distress, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Come on, you may feel like that you're at the end of your rope. Lord, I can't go on another day. I'm too weak. He's about to reach down and minister to you in the thorns, in your weakness. Paul realized it may hurt and it's lonely and I might not think I can make it another day, but I can look back. I can look back at the pain and the suffering of the thorns. And remember, this is where my life was changed. Paul knew in his weakness, Jesus would make him strong because his grace is efficient for anything. I was raised in a preacher's home raised up on the good and godly things of this world, not subjected to abuse by my parents, never abandoned, loved for, cared for, but my sin nature was always trying to find a way to overcome me. Come on, I want to tell somebody, this isn't in my notes, but I feel this in the Holy Ghost. Your sin nature will never stop trying to overcome you. That's why you have to be broken. That's why you have to be contrite. 
That's why you have to have a repentant spirit to keep that old sin nature at bay. So when you are weak, he will make you strong. My first taste of addiction was when I was eight years old. And I stole my uncle's Winston cigarettes, snuck out in the woods and fired up that Winston cigarette. They like to kill me. But I kept them. And every chance I got, I would steal a cigarette here and there. Then when I was 11, I was messing around in the church somewhere where we was preaching and they had a cabinet for communion and it was wine, not grape juice. And at 11 years old, I tasted my first taste of alcohol through the communion wine. I won't even get on that subject because I get in trouble. What happened was the key of addiction had been placed in my hand at eight. And at 11, I stuck it in the lock of that door and I opened it up. By the time I was 13, I'd smoked my first joint. Any chance that I got to get high or find some alcohol and drink it, I would sneak around and try to drink. I've walked through ditches looking for bottles of whiskey with still some left where people had thrown them out and I would drain them and drink them. Drinking and smoking pot, the gateway drug. Come on, America. Come on, America. Don't fall into this trap. Don't fall into this trap about marijuana. No, it's not okay to smoke pot. It's going to open up doors to addiction that you've never realized. Before long, it's going to be like other cities in America. Come on, where you're laying around, you see needles everywhere. They all started smoking pot. I was an alcoholic by the time I was 18. My hands would shake like this. And I was addicted to crack. By the time I was 18 years old, I took a syringe, a U100 insulin syringe full of methamphetamines at 18 and it was put into my vein and I watched the blood shoot up into that syringe and I was immediately addicted. 19, I was so strung out on on drugs, on crack, on meth, anything that I could put in a spoon and draw up in an insulin syringe and put it in my vein. I was a violent man. If you dealt with me, I didn't even think about it. I would beat people. I would hurt people. I would rob people. If something came against me, my ways of dealing with it was violence. And I became a man with a hatred for God. I hated the church, so I turned to the devil. And I started doing things in the occult, praying to the devil. I knew some devil's names, and I would call their names out so they would come up and visit us, turning the Bible upside down, having seances, reading tarot cards. If it was evil, that's what I wanted. I wanted to be as far away from good as I could. I found myself bound and arrested, charged with 12 class Y felonies. I was 38 years old, deep in the thorns of sin, trapped with no way out. But in my desperation in the thorns, I cried out to God. I cried out in my pain. I cried out in my despair. He didn't say, look what you was doing. Just like the prodigal when he came home, his father didn't say, where have you been? What have you been doing? No, my God said, 
Come here, son. I don't care what you said against me. I don't care what you did. He began to minister to me in my affliction, in my thorns, and he heard my cry. Psalm 119.65, Thou hast dealt well with thy servant, O Lord, according unto thy word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I have believed thy commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now have I kept thy word. Thou art good, doest good. Teach me thy statutes. The proud have forged a lie against me, but I will keep thy precepts with my whole heart. Their heart is as fat as grease, but I delight in the law. It is good for me that I have been afflicted that I might learn thy statutes. It was in my affliction, it was in the thorns that God saved me because there's a ministry in your affliction. Come on, I know we got sons and daughters. I've got them right now living in sin, living in affliction. Come on, but it's in their affliction where God is gonna pull them out. Come on, go ahead. Every time they go through affliction, let them go. Don't help them. Let God work it out because someday in their affliction, God, they're going to cry out to God. You see, the thorns aren't just for the sinner. They're also for the saint because there's a ministry in the thorns. With angry shouts, with torches and swords, soldiers from the Sanhedrin court are being led through the Garden of Gethsemane by one of Jesus' disciples. They find him in the throes of pain and agony. You see, he has been crying out, Father, let this cup pass from me. He is sweating great drops of blood as it falls from his face. And he looks in that cup of his destiny I don't believe it was the fear of the cross and I don't believe it was the fear of the whipping post. I don't even believe it was the fear of humiliation and shame why he didn't want this cup. I personally believe that he knew if he took this cup, this sinless man would have to taste the vile, putrid sins of Nick Mahaney and he didn't want to taste my bitterness. He didn't want to taste my hate and he didn't want to taste my shame. But he says, nevertheless, not my will but thine. His followers flee and he's bound and he's led to the Sanhedrin court. You see, the Sanhedrin court is where he's going to be tried by his peers. These are not evil men. These are 70 of the most revered men in all of Israel. Every Jewish boy wanted to grow up and be on the Sanhedrin court because that's where all the heroes of their faith at that time was. And here he is led before these 70 men, 70 priests, and they find him guilty of heresy and blasphemy. You see, it is the custom of this court. When you are found guilty of these charges, his hands are bound behind his back and they walk up and slap him one at a time and spit in his face. Can you imagine 
as he stands there and 70 men walk up and spit on him and slap him. His eyes are swollen shut. His lips are split. His nose is bleeding. Rubbery strings of spit hang out of his beard. And then they bind him and they lead him away to prison. You see, I know it doesn't tell us what happened while he was in prison, but all you have to do is research the history of the Romans and you can read about the horrible things that went on in the Roman prisons. So I'm here to tell somebody, I don't care what you've been through. Jesus has already been there before you. Come on, I had, a, I had an older man molest me when I was a kid, but guess what? Jesus had already been molested. So I don't carry it around, I gave it to him. Come on, I know somebody, come on, I feel this, has done you wrong. Come on, they put their hands on you, they have hurt you, but you don't have to carry it anymore. He already took that problem when he was laying in that prison. He's just waiting on you to give it back to him. The next morning he's taken before the governor, Pontius Pilate. There his life is traded for a murderer named Barabbas. The angry crowd begins to shout, crucify him, crucify him, give us Barabbas. And behind Pilate's hall, the historians say was a massive courtyard. And in that massive courtyard that would fit hundreds and hundreds of people, there was one pillar that stood in the middle of that massive courtyard. And it was there for one reason and one reason only. There's a squad of soldiers that are waiting by this pillar. You see, these soldiers are trained to put and inflict pain and misery on people. These soldiers, this is passed down from their fathers. So their grandfathers did the same job. Their great-grandfathers, it was passed down to each son on how to beat and hurt people. And they fall on Jesus and they strip him naked. The crowd is jeering and cheering. And they take this modest rabbi that has never known anything to do with immodesty and they stand him up naked in front of the world, naked in front of his family, naked in front of his peers, naked for the whole world to see. They grab his left hand and they tie his left wrist as high as they can to this pillar and they have to stretch him to tie his right wrist to the right side of the pillar. His feet are barely touching the ground as they tie his left ankle. Then they stretch his legs and tie his right ankle. And these soldiers would first take an eight or nine foot long ox hide whip. This whip wasn't designed to tear anything. It was designed to make stuff soften up and supple, supple so they could rip it from his body. One on the left, one on the right, and they laid that whip across his back. When they did, red angry whelps jump up on his flesh and they sting and he cries out in agony and they begin to beat him as fast as they can. One on the left, one on the right for 15 minutes or until they ran out of breath. The two more soldiers walk up and take their place. They have a flagrum, a long wooden handle. It's got strips of leather coming out the end. There's ball bearings, there's sheep bone, there's pieces of glass, metal, anything that'll grab the flesh. And they reach over and they lay that whip across his back. And when they do, it hangs in the flesh and they rip it and a red angry mist of blood showers through the air. He screams out in agony and they begin to lay that whip across his body. From his back down to his feet, they beat him. 
over and over until they're out of breath. Two more walk up and they begin to beat him again and again and again. You see, the beating wasn't for our salvation. See, the cross was for our salvation. But he knew that I was going to need more than just the Savior. Come on. He knew that Nick Mahaney was going to need a healer. Come on, I still believe God's about to heal me of diabetes. I can hear the prophet Isaiah's voice as it echoes down through the centuries of time. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. The blood is pouring out of his body. You can see his ribs and his organs. They have ripped the flesh from him. And they reach up and they cut him loose. And he falls to the ground with the blood pouring out of him. So much blood would come out that they had trenches carved into cobblestones. So it channeled the blood away from them so they wouldn't slip and fall while they were beating people. He's going into shock. His head is spinning. He's in such pain that he's beginning to throw up. And they lift him to his weak body. And he stands there and they take a robe and they put it on him. Matthew 27 and 28. And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had planted a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him, mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Mark 15, they planted a crown of thorns. John 19, they scourged him, and the soldiers planted a crown of thorns. You see, there's a ministry in the thorns. And they began to push him with a 125-pound cross member out through the crowd. They began to spit on him, pull out handfuls of his beard. They began to laugh at him. The sweat is running into his eyes. He's dying of thirst. He's weak from all the loss of blood, and they push him towards Golgotha. And it was not uncommon. If he wasn't a, a Roman citizen, there was people crucified all over the place, up and down the roads. Jesus knew what was going to happen to him, and they find Simon to help him bear the cross. And at the, at, the, at the top of Golgotha, they take and they take your right forearm and they bind it to that cross member. Then they take your left forearm and bind it. And that Roman soldier with a cleated sandal so he wouldn't slip in combat stomps on his wrist. His hand opens up and they put that spike and they drive it through his hand. He screams out in agony as the blood begins to pour out. You see all the nerves in your body end in your hands and feet. And the historians say the reason they had to bind them because when that nail went into all them nerves, they'd start flopping on the ground and tear themselves loose from the cross. He's flopping and screaming out in agony. And they take a loop to his left wrist and they pull it as tight as they can. Usually you'd hear the crack of a shoulder or an elbow as it's dislocated. And they'd lash his left bicep. And they'd lash his left forearm, stomping on his hand again. They'd drive a nail into his other hand. He screams out in agony and pain. You see, we, because of pictures painted by Europeans way down the road, they always have him on the cross way up high, but that's not what the Romans would do. They wanted you to be as low to the ground so your family and friends could look you in the face and see your pain and suffering. They'd grab that cross member and they'd lift him up. He's just dangling, dangling there. The blood's pouring out on the ground. They drop him on that upright stake. And that back and legs 
was in such, looked like a plowed up field and he screams out in agony as he comes to a stop and the nails are tearing in his flesh. They bend his right knee and they take the point of that nail and they put it at that space between the ankle and the heel and they drive it through his Achilles tendon into the cross. They move and bend his left knee. They put that nail at the space between his ankle and his heel and they drive it into the Achilles tendon and he screams out, here he is crucified. The only way he can breathe is to pull himself up level so his lungs will inflate. He pulls himself up, takes a quick breath and falls back down in pain. The sweat running into his eyes, the maggots coming out of his flesh the mosquitoes, the flies buzzing him, thirsty, sit three hours in the daylight, three hours in the dark because he looked down through the ages. He seen you when you walked through that door into Atlanta West this morning and he hung on that cross. Hebrews 12 and 2 tells us with joy he suffered for us. Then he says it's finished. He gave up the ghost. And when he said it was finished, that veil in the temple tore from the top to the bottom because the Spirit of God burst out of that veil because no longer was there going to have to be bulls. No longer was there going to have to be the blood of goats. No longer the blood of lambs or turtle doves because the, the lamb had just shed his blood. Through his affliction, he saved our soul. Through the ministry of the thorns, it brought us salvation. And Colossians 2.12, buried with him in baptism. Come on, not buried with them, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead, and you being dead in your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinance that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, having spoiled principalities, powers. He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them. Come on, there's a ministry in his thorns. Three days later, though, he didn't stay in the grave. Come on, three days later. He burst out of the grave with the marks of the thorns on his head, the nails in his hands. Come on, he's alive. He's alive. He's alive. Come on, we don't serve a dead God. We serve an alive God. You can go to the grave of Buddha. His bones are there. You can go to Confucius. His bones are there but I have been to the grave of Jesus. The tomb is empty because he is risen. And that same Jesus, let's all stand, is in this place today. He knows where you're at in your affliction. He knows where you've been in your trial. And he knows where you are in your sickness. That same Jesus is walking these aisles. 
nail-scarred hands. He's knocking on your door, on your heart's door. He's knocking. He said, come unto me, all ye that are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He knows what the doctor has said about you. He's just waiting on you. We're not waiting on him. He's waiting on our faith to join his faith. And when we believe that he is the healer, come on, when we believe, that's when he's going to heal your body today. Come on, who? I want you to lift your hands if you need a healing in your body right now. Come on, the doctors have told you that there's something wrong with you by the authority of the word of God. Come on, the power that's in the name of Jesus. I speak against your sickness and your infirmities. Listen, God's about to heal you in this place right now. Come on, there's about to be a shaking in this building. But before I get to physical healing, see, there's this thing called faith. Faith is action. God could send a lightning bolt right now. I mean, he spoke the world into existence. Lightning's nothing to him. But that would be his faith. He wants to see your faith. You've been walking through an affliction. It seems like you get so far in your life. Then all of a sudden, everything just pulls out from under you and you fall back to the same place. I know that was me. But he sent me to tell you in your affliction is where he'll heal you. You've never been baptized in Jesus' name. He's wanting to pull you out of your thorns and your misery. He's wanting to set your feet on that way called holy. Come on, every head bowed, every eye closed. Come on, saints, I need your prayers right now. Come on, I wonder who'd be brave enough and have faith and step out right now and say, I've been walking in the thorns Come on. I can't step out for you or I would. I can't live like this anymore. I can't take this anymore. After all you've done for me, Lord, I'm ready to live for you. Come on there. Come on, this ain't it. Come on. Come on, some of you. Come on, I'm just going to tell you what the Holy Ghost is saying. You're soothing your conscience. One foot in the world, one in the church. God wants wants you to put your feet on solid ground. He wants you to know that there's pain and there's affliction, but there's a ministry in your affliction. Come on, this altar's open. Come on, begin to step out. Lord, I can't live like this anymore. Come on, I want want my saints of God to reach over and take somebody by the hand. Come on. Take them down to this altar. Lord, I can't live in this affliction. I'm I'm ready for your grace. I'm ready for you to open it up to me. Come on, begin to crowd close. Get in close as you can. That's it. Come on. God is moving on people right now. You're about to receive the Holy Ghost. Your life is about to be changed. 